I thought you'd be interested to know that the book of Acts is in the news these days. Last week, Time magazine had an article called 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World. Now, they do these articles every so often, and most of the ideas were fairly predictable. Robots and furniture and food. But apparently, one of the 10 ideas that are changing the world is an idea that's taking hold in the church. And here's how the article describes it. It says, rather than softening the gospel message to make it more marketable, the church is being forced back into the book of Acts. The article quotes various Christian leaders who point out that the world of Acts was a world of hostile cultural forces. And as the church today finds itself in an increasingly similar situation, the church needs to take its cues from Acts. And the article summarizes the big idea like this. The gospel has to be boldly proposed and radically embodied if the church is to grow and the wounds of a culture of self-absorption are going to be healed. That's from Time magazine. Now, Time magazine is no friend normally of Christianity. And we do not take our marching orders from Time magazine. But I think it is significant that even a secular magazine sees the folly of a church that's embarrassed about its message. If even some non-believers can see that, how much more should we be able to see it? We have no need to be tentative about our message. Because our broken, self-absorbed culture desperately needs our message. And so with that introduction, let's turn back to this book that's as relevant today as it ever has been. We're now in the last quarter of Acts. And last week we said that this section, these last seven chapters, could be called Christianity on Trial. These last seven chapters show us Paul defending the faith in front of crowds and councils and rulers. But as we read these chapters and as Paul speaks, we discover that actually this world is on trial too. We've probably all heard people talking about having a moral compass. As far as I know, that phrase was made famous by Gordon Brown. But it may have been around before him. In any case, if I've understood that phrase correctly, what people mean by a moral compass is a trustworthy internal sense of right and wrong. And our passage this morning shows us Christianity, represented by the Apostle Paul, being put on trial by a world that has lost its moral compass. But as he stands on trial, Paul shows that it's this world which has been put on trial by God. And it's been found wanting. We're going to pick up at Acts chapter 23, verse 12. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1120. And first of all, in this passage, we see national pride and personal ambition gone wrong. 
The background here is that Paul has just appeared the day before in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he had to be extracted from that meeting by Roman soldiers because it looked like he was going to be torn to pieces. And we pick up in chapter 23, verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. The Jews who form this conspiracy are not the religious leaders. They're Jewish nationalists. They want to rid their country of what they see as outside forces that are ruining their way of life. And they may may well have belonged to the group known as the Sicarii or the Dagger Men. They resent Gentiles. And they resent Jews who are in league with Gentiles. And as far as they see it, Paul falls into that category. So officially, the leaders of the Jews are not part of this. But the conspirators do get the support of the leaders. Apparently, the chief priests and elders go along with this scheme to call Paul back to the Sanhedrin for more questioning. And the plan is that on the way from the barracks to the temple, the conspirators will kill him. Now, the irony here is that in the name of being good Jews, these men take an oath before Israel's God that involves breaking two of his commandments. They are planning to lie and murder. And the person they're going to murder in the name of loving their country is one of their own people. Now, it is a great thing to support your country. And we see the soft side of national pride when the Olympics or the World Cup come around. But it does not take very much for national pride to turn ugly. It doesn't take much for it to spill over into Protestants and Catholics blowing each other up in Northern Ireland. It doesn't take much to produce genocide in Serbia or the Sudan. When national pride becomes the thing that determines right and wrong for us, then national pride goes badly wrong. And just to be clear, the alternative to this is not to hate our country. Paul himself had a deep love of his country. But it was a love that desired to see his countrymen find salvation in Christ. It was a national pride that was brought into the service of the gospel. National pride can be good when it motivates us to win our nation for Christ. It's bad when it becomes an end in itself. Well, look what happens next in our passage in verse 16. 
When the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to this request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I find that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Somehow, Paul's nephew hears about the plot. He must have had friends in low places. And he manages to get the information to the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. And Claudius reacts immediately. That night, he sends Paul off to Caesarea, protected by a significant number of soldiers. Claudius does not want a major incident on his hands. And, we see here, he is a man with personal ambition. He wants to use this situation to build his own reputation. Notice how he starts his letter to the Roman governor in Caesarea in verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Actually, the reality was a little different. Before he bothered to find out if Paul was a Roman citizen, Claudius had arrested Paul. He had bound him with chains and he had ordered him flogged all of which was illegal. But Claudius wants to come out of this looking like the hero. Now, in comparison to most of those around him, Claudius is not too bad. 
but he is a man of ambition. He wants to get ahead. Last week, we learned that he got his Roman citizenship through bribery. That has allowed him to rise to be a commander. And now he's trying to use Paul to get another dishonest leg up in the Roman system. It's good to want to make progress in life. But when personal ambition becomes a thing that determines right and wrong for us, then personal ambition goes badly wrong. It leads us to bend the rules and bend the truth to get ahead. Well, Paul has been delivered from the conspirators in Jerusalem. I've often wondered what happened to them. Presumably, they either starved to death or they backed ungraciously out of their oath. In any case, Paul is still a prisoner. And he still has enemies who want to convince the Romans to kill him themselves. In chapter 24, those enemies go to work. And what we see is politics and power gone wrong. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullius presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Tertullus is a professional lawyer, and his name suggests that he wasn't a Jew himself. The fact that he's here shows how badly the Jewish leaders want the Paul problem to be sorted out. They know their case against Paul is weak. They need a professional lawyer to argue it for them. But Tertullus' presentation is a combination of flattery and an attempt to stir up Christian phobia. We'll get to the Christian phobia in a moment. But first, notice the flattery. In verse 2, he says to Felix, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Actually, historians tell us that of all the governors this region had under the Romans, Felix was the one most responsible for stirring up ill will and trouble. Felix was not popular with the Jews. But Tertullus is trying to butter him up here. And he's doing that because he wants him to buy into what's coming next. In verse 3, he moves on to call Paul a troublemaker. Literally, that word means a pestilence or a plague. In other words, Paul is like an infectious disease. 
He spreads problems wherever he goes. He's dangerous, Felix. And he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now that is a reference to Christianity. But calling it that is designed to make Christianity sound like a threat. Tertullus is presenting it as a secretive, sinister group that is not to be trusted. You should be worried about this guy, Felix, and the group that he belongs to. And what's Tertullus' evidence for this? In verse 6, he says, Paul even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. But in fact, Paul had been at the temple because he was purifying himself in accordance with Jewish law. What are we to make of this? Well, what Tertullus is doing is nothing new. When the leaders of the Jews wanted Jesus crucified, they used the same tactic. They presented him to Pilate as a threat to peace and stability. They shouted to Pilate, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. If you let this man go, Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. But Jesus had already explained to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus came to bring peace between God and his creation. And his followers proclaim the message of the peace that's available in Jesus. But as we've seen throughout Acts, our message of peace is often presented as a dangerous plague. In the kind of language that's popular today, we would say the opponents of Christianity try to stir up Christian phobia. They try to make people fear it and be hostile to it by presenting it as a threat. And in order to achieve the effect they want, they're willing to misrepresent Christianity. Let me give you a recent example of how this can play out today. Last December, a statement was issued by the all-party parliamentary group on religious education. The chairman of that group said that we needed more and better RE lessons in our schools. Why do we need that? Because a decline in school RE lessons means, and I'm quoting here, children are in danger of being swayed by the beliefs and offensive opinions voiced by Christian families. Children need more RE in school so they don't have to listen to the fundamentally bigoted attitudes of their Christian parents. The report went on to lump together fundamentalist Christian views and fundamentalist Muslim views. And we all know the connotations of the word fundamentalist today. Fundamentalists are people who blow up buildings and buses full of people. That may not be what the word used to mean, but it's what the word fundamentalist means to people today. 
And when the parliamentary committee chose to use that word about Christian parents, it was an attempt to stir up Christian phobia. There may be many good reasons for having more and better RE lessons in our schools. But since when have genuine Christian parents been a danger to their children? It's no wonder Time magazine points out how relevant the book of Acts is today. We're back in a situation in many ways where Christianity is being presented as a plague on society. Tertullus has had his say. How does Paul respond? Well, he responds with respect. He denies that he's a threat. And at the same time, he unapologetically tells Felix what he does believe. If you look down to verse 13, we jump in partway through Paul's speech and he says to Felix, they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Notice that twice in these verses, Paul mentions his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Remember what Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why my followers aren't fighting for earthly kingdoms. They're building for a future kingdom. Paul is making the same point here. Christianity is not a threat to earthly governments because Christianity is not competing for earthly power. No human government has anything to fear from Christianity unless that government wants to be worshipped itself. Unless it sees the God of the Bible as a rival. Unless it wants to overthrow God's authority and impose its own authority on people's minds and hearts. No human government needs to fear Christianity unless the moral compass of that government has lost its magnetism to the point where it calls good evil and evil good. Well, we're about to find out what state Felix's moral compass is in. He has heard the flattery and the accusations of the Jewish leaders. And he's heard Paul's defense. What is he going to do? Verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings 
When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. The first thing we are told about Felix is that he was well acquainted with the way. That was how Christianity was often referred to. And the point here is that Felix knew very well that the charges against Paul were bogus. He knew the followers of Jesus were not a dangerous plague. But he doesn't dismiss those charges. He doesn't release Paul. Instead, we're told he adjourned the proceedings. And the excuse he gives is, I need to talk to Lysias, the commander from the barracks in Jerusalem. I need to get his input on this. But he already knows what Lysias has to say about Paul. Back in his letter to Felix, Lysias had told him, In chapter 23, verse 29, I find that there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When Felix says he needs to wait for Lysias, it's a stalling tactic. It's a way to postpone doing what he is legally required to do, which is to release Paul. And in fact, Felix shows that he doesn't see Paul as a threat. He does that by having him guarded, but given some freedom. By allowing his friends to visit him and take care of him. So Felix knows that legally he ought to release Paul. If he shows by the lenient prison arrangements that he knows Paul isn't a threat. Why does he not let Paul go? Well, the text gives us two reasons. Verse 29 says he leaves Paul sitting in prison for two years because he wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. Felix is unpopular with the Jews and he wants to throw them a bone. He knows that he can't convict Paul of anything, but to please the Jews, he illegally keeps Paul in prison. Felix's desire to hold on to power has become the thing that determines right and wrong for him. So it seems right in his eyes to deny Paul justice for the sake of his own political security. We're given a second reason why Felix leaves Paul in prison. He wants to make money out of him. Verse 26 says he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. Now clearly, for a man in Felix's position to hold Paul in the hope of a bribe, he must have been expecting a pretty substantial bribe. 
Why would Felix think he'd get that from Paul? Had Paul shown up in a flashy suit? Was he wearing diamond cufflinks? No, but Paul had mentioned that when he arrived in Jerusalem, before all this trouble started, he had brought his people gifts for the poor. Now, Acts has not made a big deal about this, but we know from Paul's letters that his collection for the poor in Jerusalem had been a major project. Over quite a long period, Paul had collected contributions from the Gentile churches. And the final amount was probably very significant. Paul mentions the rich generosity of the Gentile believers. Now that particular collection has already been handed over to the believers in Jerusalem. But it has dawned on Felix that Paul is connected to a large network of very generous people. And Felix is hoping that Paul will tap into that network again in order to buy his way out of prison. So Felix sits and waits. Notice the irony in all of this. The Jews have accused Paul and his message of being a dangerous plague. And yet they're the ones who've made false accusations to try and get their own way. And the Roman governor Felix is holding Paul illegally. And he's looking for an illegal bribe from Paul. A bribe which Paul is never going to offer him. Who's the one here whose moral compass is working? It's Paul. It's the man who is living in submission to God. The alternative we're seeing is for everyone to do what's right in their own eyes. When society silences the truth of Christianity, when society claims there's no objective standard of right and wrong, when it claims there's no higher authority we must submit to, what happens? What happens is that those in power impose their own authority. We don't get a lovely, tolerant society where everyone is free to do what they want. No, that's the theory, but it never happens that way. When God is silenced in the name of personal freedom, what we get is the powerful imposing their agenda on the weak and the powerless. There will never be an absence of authority in society. If we don't submit to the authority of our Creator and His Son, Jesus Christ, then we'll find ourselves either under the authority of those who let national pride determine what's right and wrong, or those who let personal ambition determine right and wrong, or those who let their own love of wealth and power determine what is right and wrong. In these final chapters of Acts, we are being shown Christianity on trial. But these chapters are also putting this world and its priorities on trial. And it doesn't look pretty. We're seeing that when a society rejects God's truth, all that's left is the sword of human power. 
And the one with the most swords, or the sharpest swords, is the one who wins. How does Paul respond in the midst of all of this? How does he behave towards this man who is unjustly treating him? Verse 24 tells us that whenever Felix would send for Paul, Paul would speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Whatever circumstances Paul finds himself in, he gets on with the work of being a witness for Jesus. And here we're given the content of Paul's message to Felix in verse 25. We're told Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now when we read that, it's important to see Paul is not just giving some generic, canned speech to Felix here. Paul's applying the gospel very directly to Felix's life. How do we know that? Well, verse 24 mentions that Felix brought his wife, Drusilla, along with him. At this point, Drusilla is not yet 20 years old. This is her second marriage. It's Felix's third marriage. And he seduced Drusilla away from her first husband. All of this was common knowledge. And it's with that knowledge that Paul stands in front of Felix and discourses on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. On a human level, Felix is the man Paul needs to be cozying up to. But Paul is a servant of God. And he shows Felix how God's word applies to Felix. Righteousness, Felix. Being right in God's eyes. That is not where you are right now, Felix. Self-control, Felix. Apparently, you don't have any. Ask Drusilla's first husband and your first two wives. God is not impressed with you. And you do not have the ability to impress him. There's a day of judgment coming, Felix. And as things stand, you will not pass the test on that day. You need to acknowledge your sin. Turn from it and put your faith in Christ Jesus. He died so your sin could be forgiven. And he offers you his righteousness so you can stand right with God on the judgment day. But you have to respond, Felix. Respond to God's grace offered to you in Jesus. I began with the statement that the gospel has to be boldly proposed and radically embodied. That's what Paul is doing. As Felix listens to Paul, he knows that this isn't just an idea for Paul. Felix sees that Paul is living this out. He knows the Jewish charges against Paul are false. And Felix has waited in vain for that bribe from Paul. Felix looks at Paul and he sees a man whose life and message hang together. He sees a man whose life makes his message believable. 
Paul is living the message. And this is what our world needs. This world and its values has been put on trial by God. And it has not stood the trial. It's a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's a world where moral compasses have lost their magnetism. And so what is right is what furthers my agenda and gets me what I want. What is wrong is anything that gets in my way. Our world needs the healing that comes from submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. So let's not be ashamed of our message. Let's share it confidently. Verse 25 tells us that as Felix listened to Paul, he was afraid. Actually, the word means something closer to terrified. Felix knows Paul has him figured out. He knows Paul has put his finger on the truth about Felix's situation. And yet, for all his terror, Felix won't turn to Christ. That's enough for now, he says. We're told that for two years, he frequently sent for Paul because he was hoping for a bribe. But each time Paul stood before him, what Felix got was a message about faith in Christ. A message that confronted Felix with the truth about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And each time he would send Paul away. That's enough for now. And in the end, it seems Felix never did find new life in Christ. He said, that's enough for now, one too many times. He was recalled to Rome, and he was removed from Paul's message. It's possible that you are looking into Christianity. And maybe by now you've got a pretty good grasp on the message. And you keep coming. But you keep going away too. Without responding to the message. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? Is there some other ambition in your life that's holding you back? Are you like Felix, torn between Jesus and something else? For Felix, the something else was getting money and holding on to power. Maybe for you it's a relationship or fear of what people will think of you. Our fear of not being your own God anymore. But when you and I stand before God, none of those other things are going to matter. A million years into eternity, none of those things will matter. This world is heading for God's judgment. Those who cling to this world are heading for judgment. I would encourage you to take hold of the only one who can save you from judgment. Put your trust in Jesus. He's all you need. And those of us who have taken hold of Jesus, 
Let's not be ashamed to share the message of Jesus. Our last two songs remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. And they remind us that our God is the one who's on the throne. We're going to sing Mystery of Mysteries and then Behold Our God.